0: Welcome to the OA Serenity Sunday meeting podcast. Serenity Sunday is now hybrid, meeting in person at Roxbury Park in Beverly Hills and on Zoom. Visit the Los Angeles Intergroups webpage at oalaig.org for information on how to join our meeting live in either iteration. Now that we're meeting in person, Serenity Sunday has regular meeting expenses and would appreciate Seventh Tradition donations to help support the meeting and this podcast. You can donate via Venmo at Serenity Sunday, last four digits of the phone number are 6255 or through PayPal, Serenity Sunday 1212 at gmail.com. The opinions expressed on the Serenity Sunday podcast are those of the individual speaker and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. And now, our speaker.
1: I'm John, compulsive overeater.
0: Hi, John. John.
1: I have, uh, I'll give some quick qualification. I've been in program now for 41 years. I have been sober in another program for 41 years and I have uh, about 27 years of abstinence and uh, for those of you who can do basic math, you'll notice that there was two different numbers there. And said tell you there was a little bit of relapsing in the middle of that. So um, I'll talk about that a little. I'm just trying to get an idea on, on, I think most of the people probably heard me talk. But I'll give a really quick food log only because um, I think everybody's heard it already. Because I you know, I have like one of the most dullest, unremarkable uh, eating histories I know. Um, Oh, I have one. I'll tell you a funny story. Um, I don't know how many people are old enough uh, uh, to remember uh, Candygrams. Anybody remember Candygrams? Okay, for for you kids. uh, Western Union used to have this thing where, you know, you could send a telegram, but you could also send a Candygram, which is a telegram attached to a box of candy. So I'm... 13 years old in New Rochelle, New York, and I hear on the TV about the Candygram, which I heard about, and they said, oh, you can charge it to your home phone number. I'm like, cool! <laughs> now, this is before they had credit cards, this is before they had that kind of thing, and so I call up and um, I say, uh, you know, I'd like to get a Candygram. Well, what's the message? Oh, I gotta come up with me. Uh Best wishes on your new project, you know? And I uh, hang up, and two days later, a guy hands me a box of candy I'm like this is cool (laughs) of course my father gets the uh, bill from New York telephone and he's like what the hell is this candy gram (laughs) dad I have no idea I have no clue what it is and so that would have worked except there were like three on there the next month and uh, and and so that I haven't heard anybody tell that story before and I always found it funny and uh I also also think that you know it, it's not that much different than the kid who broke into your car because he's on crack and he needs to buy his fix. That that was me, you know. That was me. That's what I did. Um, I grew up with um, two different alcoholic parents that divorced. I kept going back between the frying pan and the fire. Um, I moved a lot. Uh, one of the troubles with having alcoholic parents or parents of any kind that have a, a problem is you watch when they get. When they get emotional, they go, I need a dot, dot, dot. I need a cigarette. I need a pill. I need a drink. And what you get unspoken is, if I don't like how I'm feeling in here, there's something out there I can put in here that will make me feel better. And that's what I got. At an early age, that was food. You know, that was food. Because one of the things that happened with my crazy alcoholic mother is we moved so many times. I know one time I... I remember I was in the ACA meetings of al and I heard somebody say at a meeting, oh, I moved six times by the time I was in the sixth grade. And I said, you know, I think I moved six times in the sixth grade. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not kidding about that. And the only reason I bring that up is it, 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 it's been a lifelong thing of having it be hard for me to make friends, because why bother? They're going to be gone. I'm going to be moving. The only two friends I had that I could, I could guarantee were going to be there no matter where I was, was salt and sweet, you know, you know. For me, mostly potato chips and any kind of candy, and uh, I always say I had to have both of them because I could actually get hit a max on on sweet, then I would go to salt, and I'd max on that, and then I'd go back to sweet. And again, it was my only comfort; it was my only friend, and it, you know, it it did the trick, you know. Um, really fast forward on it, I end up in high school. I'm the fat kid. You know, being a fat kid is brutal because you—you—you know, kids are just nasty and they—they pull no punches. And I even got—I remember getting beat up because I was—I was fat. And uh, got to high school, uh, didn't go to the prom, didn't have a date, didn't do any of that stuff. Um, And then, and—and I was never going to drink because again, I got a—you know—that got a good brain, and I saw what my parents did, so I'm never going to do that. And yet i'm you know like at the end of high school i'm a 17 year old boy full of hormones i want to meet the opposite sex and i am just terrified and i found this magic elixir that you can get at a bar and you take it and you become james bond (laughs) hello darling um and i just fell in love with it pretty quick now let me just say the only reason i'm bringing that up is that it was the first time in my life i was able to lose weight because I sort of—I always joke—I switched my sugar to the liquid form, and I started going on crazy dieting. I, my, my, I, how I lost weight at that age was I didn't eat for a week at a time, and then I binged on like a Saturday night, and then I wouldn't eat again for a week at a time and binge. And you know, if you're if you're a 19-year-old boy with the you know the metabolism of a hummingbird, you will lose weight. It's not very healthy. But I can also look back and know, you know, I knew even then that there was no dimmer switch on this. There was only off and on. And the only way I was gonna stay at a normal weight was to keep it off as long as I humanly possibly could. And then it would go on again. And anyway, I got to a normal weight for 10 seconds. Um, I had my first relationship. And then alcohol took over, as it often does. And I went off to the races. And I was drinking like crazy and eating. I, I, I you know, Again, I went from the food to alcohol. And then the two of them came together. I would say I, I was fat, then I was a drunk, and then I was a fat drunk. Um, I came to AA. Uh, I always joke, I said my first AA meetings were during the Carter administration, uh, just to show you how I'm older than dirt. Um, and um, the only reason I bring that up is that's where I was able to let go of my judgment about the 12 steps, because, you know, I'd been to meetings when I was a kid with my mother. You know, uh, me, a meetings were the place you went and got stole all the donuts at the, <laughs> because while they were having a meeting, you know, they would have a break and have donuts. So I was, I'm in the back there, and I'm just, you know, what happened to all the donuts? Um, but I had such a problem with the God thing, God, you know, and and a guy, you know, I'm putting away chairs. I know I needed it. I was in I was in detox. I got I got um, released from detox and went and drank immediately. But I, I by then I knew I had to do something. So I came to this Sunday morning AA meeting and I uh um, I went I couldn't tell you what happened at the meeting, but at the end we're putting away chairs and I'm arguing with the guy about the steps and I'm going I can't be in a religious program, and he's like no it, it's a spiritual program it's not a religious program. And, and so then I turned, because the steps were up on the walls of this clubhouse I used to got sober in. And it looks at like God, 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 him with a capital H. you know, And he looked at it, and he said, OK, leave it out. And I was like, what? He said, leave it out. You can stay here until you're 110 years old. Nobody's ever going to tell you you have to believe anything or anything specific. Just, just keep coming. And he said, the one thing I'll ask you, if you can, try and keep an open mind. You know and because he said it in that way it made all the difference in the world you know the pressure was off and it did it you know jammed a little mustard seed in the door and i eventually was able to find something that worked for me it's certainly not anything that i grew up with i think for a lot of us our higher power looks nothing like what we grew up with because you know we all, we all get a hand-me-down god right and i've always said if, if you want to have some kind of a you know conscious contact you got to tear that thing down and then rebuild it now you may rebuild it exactly in the same manner as the you know the, you know the, the faith of your childhood but then it'll be yours you know it won't be something given to you you know and 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 I think that that is absolutely a key thing is having some kind of a conscious contact getting out of myself uh, i always tell people i believe i believe the 12 steps were god's gift to the 20th century you know and in the way I put it is, I said it, you know, it, it's the rowboat that was sent to help us. You know, we still have to get in it and row to shore ourselves. But to me, that, that's one of the keys. And and uh, I tell people, I, you know, if you've been enough time in program, I know Catholic priests, I know Protestant ministers, I know rabbis, I know cantors, I know nuns that are in this program. If it was simply a matter of. You know, conscious contact with a higher power alone. those people wouldn't have been there, but they had to get in the same robot we did. They had to come up with a way that they could see a higher power that that would help them with their with their problem and And that to me is what i I think works. I tell newcomers all i I tell that story about the rowboat to newcomers, and I say, "Look, I personally believe this rowboat has some kind of thread up to something. I don't know, some higher power, something." I can't believe these two guys who, one's a stockbroker, one's a proctologist, and and some of the stuff they come up with is is basic psychological stuff, you know? Um, I can't believe it came out of nowhere. Uh, I tell them though, if you have trouble with that, if you have trouble with any kind of spiritual thing, they just cut that little thread that goes up and just believe in the rowboat. believe in the process. And you know what, you don't even need faith because you can look around these rooms and see people who spent a lifetime trying to manage this without any help until they got here and they got fellowship because I needed that. I needed to come and be with my peeps. You know, I tried. I, want, I, I don't have time to go in my whole story, But I got abstinent for a while and then I lost it. And then when I, you know, because I was like, and and then I came back to OA and I was doing okay, but my sponsor left and I'm like, I know, you know, I'm I'm in the mothership program. I don't need, I don't need a sponsor here. Well, I certainly did and I relapsed. And I know now I have to be able to share with somebody who has my problem. You know, they don't have, they definitely are never gonna have my exact thing, but they know what it's like they a lot of them will know what it's like to wear out your pants in a crotch because your legs rub together or you know you sit alone on a saturday night for years at a time and and so i i made it to oa i I fell in love with oa Uh, i always joke this is the one time i was ever an anorexic Um, i always tell the story i have every iteration of this disease i have been a compulsive eater i've been a uh, a bulimic, I've been an uh, exercise bulimic, and for this one little time when I first came to OA, I was anorexic, and the reason was this: I, I had this magic idea of what goal weight was going to be. You know, it was like Nirvana. There was, you know, rainbow there for goal weight, and everything was going to change. I was going to like myself. I was going to be confident. All this stuff, and I got the goal weight, and I got the goal weight. <laughs> nothing changed i didn't like myself anymore i didn't feel any more confident nothing changed so you know the genius that i am i go oh it must not be the right number (laughs) so i lose another 10 pounds and i still don't like myself and i don't feel good and so okay another 10 pounds and by then i got people coming up to me going john are you okay because this is like in the middle of the aids crisis (laughs) are you all right (laughs) and i can say i had to do that i know my brain You could have told me this all day. I had to experience it for myself, and that's this, that there's no number on a scale that's gonna make me like myself, is gonna make me accept myself. It's an inside job, and I I had to do that and to understand that, you know, because otherwise I would keep setting these goals of what would happen, and then I'll be better, and then if I got that goal, I'll just set another goal. And that's not just with weight, it's with achievement, it's about everything you know so um real quickly because i don't have a lot of time i was absent for a while then i went a slipping sliding time for a long time i call it a relapse cycle i came here to la and my my program totally fell apart and I always tell the story that I'm, I, was, uh, I was here, I had a sponsor who is online right now. Uh, I, I was a sponsor, I was a delegate at meetings, I was actually secretary of artists and abstinence meeting. And by the way, I shouldn't have been secretary or sponsor, but that's another story. <laughs> I would leave that art, artists and abstinence meeting and stop at the donut shop on the way home. And I would—I'd be walking out of there, going, "What the hell? What the hell am I doing? I'm not, I'm not sentenced to OA. If I don't want to be here, I don't have to." And, you know, was that was a pitiful, incomprehensible demoralization. You know, and, and it just—for the longest time—I just couldn't understand it. You know, and eventually, I actually went to another program for a while. I needed to do that, uh, and I got abstinent. And eventually, I ended up back in OA. And I spent a lot of time looking at. The, you know, what happened to me with the relapse. And I, I saw a couple things. I always like to share this. First of all, I like to say my disease is like the world's best salesman. You know, if you think of somebody who's a salesman, they're smooth and they're suave and they're likable and they like their product, which in our case is the food, and they know we like that product. <laughs> and they're trying to make the sale of getting us to go eat, right? And that salesman is here 24-7. And the really evil thing is, if that salesman makes the sale, if it gets me to go out and eat, it then puts its arm around me and says, And by the way, you know, this was your idea. You know? It wasn't my idea. If if it was my idea, I wouldn't have been going to five meetings a week. I wouldn't have been a secretary. I wouldn't have been a sponsor. But in that moment of impulse, that's what addiction does. It convinces you it's your idea. And that was the thing that had to change. I had to find a way to separate where I am from where the disease is. And, and it's not easy because, you know, it lives in every neuron of my brain. I, I love, I think it was Marcy used to say, you can't fix a broken brain with a broken brain. I need help. And for me, the first three steps are, the shortcut on that is, I can't do this alone. The guy used to say to me, a guy said to me when I first came in, if you could have done this yourself, you'd have done it by now, <laughs> you know? And number two, I am crazy. I need help. I I, not everywhere, but in this one area. Thanks. um, I need help, and then I need to go ask for help. Now, and if in the beginning you have no, you have trouble with higher back. Don't worry about it. Just find somebody who has what you want and ask them how he or she is achieving it, and and be willing to take some direction. Because my own best thinking got me where I was when I walked in here. Guy said once. You drove the car into the ditch. Why don't you let us help you tow it out? You know, And I, I always really liked that because it, it made a difference. And so eventually, I, I got the abstinence again. And again, the one thing I did is I kept looking back all the time. At what, what the heck was all that about? And I, the, the thing is this. I'm a good little student. You give me the syllabus, I'll follow it fine. And I'll mimic whatever you tell me to say. And the one thing I would do is i get up and go, I'm powerless. I'm powerless over food. I'm powerless. And then I'd go eat. <laughs> and then they'd come back and go, I'm powerless, I'm powerless. And they go eat again. Well, how powerless did I think I was? Was I saying, oh, the hell with OA, I'm never coming back? No, I, in the back of my mind, even though I couldn't really even see it, I was saying, when I'm done, I will come back, and I will get abstinent again. And the reason was I had the empirical evidence I could. And that's the thing. It took me so long to understand powerlessness with food. I am powerful over the food in the small picture, okay? Because I knew if I broke my abstinence, I could eventually grind that train to a halt again. I might have to go to 90 meetings in 90 days, get a new sponsor, do a lot of writing, but eventually the food would stop. But the minute it stopped, the clock was going on when I was going out again, because I had never really understood, and I heard it, A woman say once, if you're a compulsive eater and you've made food an option, it's always going to be the only option. It's always going to be the path of least resistance. And that's one of the things that's changed, You know, was to understand that. And for me today, I can enjoy my food. I very much enjoy my food. I occasionally overeat a little at a meal, but I don't use it as an outlet for my emotions. It has to be, I have to go through this crap. Because if I don't go through the crap, I'm not gonna get through it. I'm just gonna keep like a rat going in the wrong thing of a maze. I'm just gonna keep doing that over and over. And, and I've learned so much here. I've learned so much from everybody here. Some people here I see, people on that, that screen I see, I know have helped me immensely. And I'll just say this before I end, I'm really worried about OA, you know? I'm worried about OA because if I had come in now and it was Zoom, and things like that, I don't know what I would have made it. Because I, it's so hard to see the intangibles of an in-person meeting. The idea that I think I got as much out of always meetings after the meeting or before the meeting than I did in the meeting. And in Zoom, you just can't do that same kind of thing. And I know this is a godsend for people who aren't around here and, and have no access to an in-person meeting. So I'm not talking it down. The, the one thing is, is, is to, to remember that this is important. It's also important for newcomers. Newcomers are going to walk through these doors, and if there's nobody there or this is all they have, I don't know if they're going to make it. You know, I, I said somebody was saying, "Well, I like it because I can go make my lunch or something like that." I'm, I'm thinking meetings shouldn't be background music. You know, they're supposed to be here and listen and, and take in and share and be able to see each other, if we can. I'm not saying that the people who are in, you know, I I remember I sponsored a girl long distance who was in Western Kansas, and she drove two hours to a meeting in Colorado Springs once a week. And I'm like, I'm never gonna bitch about having to drive to Los Feliz again, (laughs) you know? And so for people like that, it's, it's, it's wonderful. But if you can, please, please come and support these meetings, you know? LA, in your group, for whatever reason, seems to be having a harder time. I went last Sunday to the Valley Studio City meeting, and there were 70 people there, 70 human beings in person. Some wore a mask. If you're worried about that, it's fine. You know, nobody's going to grab and pull your mask off. We respect that. But remember, you know, we, we all came to meetings during flu season. Nobody said, "Oh, it's flu season, I can't come right now." And right now the numbers are about the same as a flu. And so please, please, please consider if you can, come to a meeting, support at least one meeting a week, you know, and be, maybe you do the rest on there, but if you can, especially if you're somewhere where they only have little small meetings, because, you know, again, I don't know if I'd have make, made it, and, and I don't know with newcomers come through this door and there's one or two people sitting here and everybody else is on TV, They're going to say, well, I'll just do that. But again, I don't know. For me, I don't know if I'd have made it. And and so I would just, I'll make that pitch for that. If you can, do. And perfect timing. (laughs) Thanks for letting me share.